0: Um, well, hello. Uh, my name's David, uh, one of the pastors here on staff, uh, a member of our teaching team. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, we are kicking off this brand new teaching series this morning, and uh, you won't hear from me every week because uh, here at Watershed we have a, a teaching team, a rotation of uh, people, about six to eight individuals. Um, two of them are harder to get a hold of, so they don't, we don't see them as often, but... Um, six to eight individuals who share the preaching, uh, teaching load. Sean, I'm not talking about you, I promise. Um, and and I'm one of them. So uh, congrats if you like what you hear today, and if not, you know, we'll try again next week. Um, so this series, uh, Signs and Wonders, uh, the big idea here is uh, we are exploring um, broadly speaking, uh, the work of, of liberation and the intersections between our faith and our spirituality, um, our experience with God and the divine, and the ways that that needs to play out tangibly, materially in the world. And I think for a lot of us, uh, oftentimes, perhaps in some of the faith communities or churches that we grew up in, uh, those things were sort of kept separate um, and, and maybe... Like freedom in the social or political sense, and freedom in the spiritual sense uh, were were two different things um, that even if they weren't like explicitly set at odds with each other, oftentimes um, they were intentionally kept apart so as to maybe paper over or disavow the ways in which uh, the words of Jesus quite frankly in the scriptures uh, which seem to imply some pretty pretty precise and specific things, uh, uh, you know, around the ways that we should order our lives in relation to others, in relation to the most marginalized and whatnot, um, ways that we could ignore those things because, well, those are, you know, Jesus was actually talking about, you know, spiritual freedom, spiritual liberation, you know, stuff after you die, things like that. And so in many ways, the big idea of the series is to sort of undo some of those assumptions and to explore ways in which perhaps that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. Um, and in order to do that, to kind of kick things off, uh, I wanted to talk about some of my uh, personal interests. And as many of you know, uh, I am sort of like the resident token um, like nerd on the teaching team. I know Cedric tries, but... Um, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. Cedric's, Cedric's an uber nerd. He's, he's very nerdy. Um, and, and part of the reason I do this, part of the reason that you know I talk about like lord of the rings and star wars and other like fun pop culture uh staples uh is because I, I i fancy myself a pretty terrible storyteller and so it's hard for me to like make those strong personal connections with you all by telling stories I, I include and this is probably not a shock based on you know the first five minutes we've spent together way too many details just way too many superfluous uh just unnecessary details and you know halfway through people are like i don't e- I don't even know what this story's about anymore. Um, I'm doing it right now. Um, and so I, I find other ways to connect, you know, sports and pop culture references and things like that. But uh, but because of the way that I've, like, leaned into this over the years, I feel like my reputation, like, like, you guys think I'm a way bigger, like, Star Wars and Marvel and Lord of the Rings fan than I am. And I, I don't want to overcorrect here. Like, yes, I do watch the movies every year. But all the way through, like, in order, like, all. 19 hours, but, um, but, but, but no, like, like, I'll put it this way. So uh, I, used to, I used to be a bartender while I was also being a pastor, which is cool. And um, those are the only two jobs I've ever had. Uh, and they're both very pastoral jobs, but that's not what the sermon's about. Um, and inevitably, you know, in a place that, like, serves, like, craft beer, you know, people will show up and, you know, they're not the regulars. Like, maybe there's an event happening nearby and, you know, they say something like, like, what's the closest thing to Coors Light? Because uh, I don't want any of this IPA stuff or whatever, you know, and so of course we have we have something there that was like an accessible beverage. that's Star Wars and Lord of the Rings like 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 all the all like the, the like the top shelf stuff I import from japan <laughs> and and so and, and and I wanted to give you a few examples to kind of kick things off, so my first love love of my life, big G over here, Godzilla, and this isn't like the American one, which is fine. um you know we have. The original 1954 Godzilla. We have Showa-era Godzilla next. Uh, that's when he got a little campy, a little bit kind of like a, like a Power Rangers cartoon. Uh, but then we got serious again in the 90s with the Hayside uh, Godzilla there, uh, right there. And then, of course, uh, Shin Godzilla. I know you all know this. I'm just rehearsing things that everyone already knows. Um, you know, we have Shin Godzilla at the end there. But what I've always loved about Godzilla is... It's like, like like it deals with some pretty heavy themes. Like, all, you know, the, the original Godzilla back in the '50s was the nation of Japan sort of reconciling and reckoning with the reality of of, of, of both um, World War II, but then also the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And and as, as as the years have gone on, like Godzilla has been used as a kind of metaphor for the consequences of um, the ways that humans treat each other or treat the planet treat the world around us and things like that and so um, whether Godzilla is a hero or a villain is often ambiguous in the same way that whether we ourselves are heroes and villains is often ambiguous and it's often it's a both and at the same time um, simultaneously so I love Godzilla another example I wanted to share with you uh more in the, the manga and anime world is the Gundam franchise. Um, so, at, at first blush, many of you are thinking, well, well of course, this guy clearly has the temperament of a 13 year old. Um, he's going to like giant robots fighting, which, yes, I mean, who doesn't? But the Gundam franchise as well is um, poignant in the way that it wrestles with the consequences of war. And in all, whether it's some of the like, like, like spin-off side ones, if you grew up like me in the era of Cartoon Network and Toonami, that one in the middle Gundam Wing was probably your, your first anime love as well. Uh, but but you know, uh, all the different disparate and oftentimes timeline confusing Gundam series, through, I, I, as you go, oftentimes it, it, it'll kind of start you off and there's, there's really clear, uh, like the good guys and the bad guys are really, really clear and then the deeper you get into it, it begins to flip the script on you a little bit, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, the the, the people I was rooting for, well, there's also, you know, they're committing war crimes now. And, and these other people who seemed like they were being portrayed as literal, like Nazis at first, all of a sudden, now we kind of, it, it, it gets really, really blurry. And I like that because I think Well, I'm going to get to why, why I like that. But, but, but in short, to sort of preview it for you, um, it's true. Like, obviously, these are made up stories. And I say, obviously, with some disappointment, because I, too, would like to pilot a giant robot someday. Um, I'm legally blind. I have, like, way, like, overcorrected uh, contacts that I wouldn't be eligible. But, um, but, you know, it's a it's a dream. It's a fantasy. Um, but, but the truth about them, even though they're fictional stories is the complexity, the complexity of the relationships that we have with one another. And when push comes to shove, it's not quite as easy as, you know, we often would like to think when it comes to defining who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's good, who's bad. Um, The hero and the villain are often one and the same. Um, more recently, last one I promise. More recently, um, I've got into a manga series which also has a phenomenal anime, which you don't even have to have Crunchyroll for. It. You can watch it on Netflix, um, called Vinland Saga. And this one might surprise some of you because it's it's just like it's it's like historical embellishment. Like there's like like it's about Vikings, but like Thor, like the god isn't in it. Like it's very very grounded, um, and it's it, it's it's loosely based on history, but. If there's sort of like an overarching theme, this is, these are two of the main characters. Uh, I know I said Thor isn't in it, but this is Thors and Thorfinn. Um, it's a common name. Um, so Thors is the, the father, Thorfinn is the son, and I don't want to spoil anything for you, because like, seriously, you all should go watch this on Netflix. It's incredible. Um, but. The big idea kind of of the whole series that has worked out over the course of many, many either episodes or chapters, if you're more of the reading type, is is this line of dialogue that's exchanged between the father and the son, if you want to hop up to the, to the next slide. You have no enemies, uh, the father tells the son. No one has any enemies, and in many ways that's kind of the big idea of this morning, um, but the problem is i I have to hold intention with another thing that that in many ways the entire point of all of the things that I've been talking about this morning have to wrestle with is is on the one hand this is true and on the other hand, not everyone lives that way. not everyone believes that, and so how do we hold both of these things in tension in a way that doesn't simply like give in and sort of accede the floor to the people who very much believe that they have enemies and very much are acting on that belief in destructive, marginalizing, exploitive, fill-in-the-blank ways. And I'm, the moment I said fill-in-the-blank, I'm sure most of you did because it's really actually not hard to have an enemy. Um, it's really easy to identify an enemy. Um, and not only is it easy to identify, it, it feels good to have an enemy. It might not always feel pleasant or pleasurable, but it is enjoyable. There is some sort of, I don't know, psychic release that we get when the lines are clearly defined, when it seems really black and white, when we have this certain level of certainty and when we can imagine or fantasize that if we can just eliminate, be it figuratively or literally, whoever we filled in the blank with, well, we'd finally have it. We'd make it. We'd be good. You know, that, everything would be good at that point. And um, I want to name up front that it, it just, I'm just guessing because I know many of you, and those I don't know, I trust that, I'm, I'm just assuming you came here for similar reasons as the people I do know, but like on, on, on some level, the people who, in my opinion, most need to hear what I'm saying this morning are not in the room. And even in saying that, I'm already sort of doing the thing. I'm already sort of identifying the enemy. Now, biblically, scripturally, This is not an uncommon theme. Um, I debated, like, what do I want to, like, which passages of scripture I kind of want to camp in, meditate on as as we talked about this this morning. Um, The obvious answer, of course, is Jesus' words in either Luke or Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Hill, uh, when he talks about, you know, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, or the whole eye for an eye, no, now I say to you, turn the other cheek. I mean, yeah, that's what Jesus is talking about here. And um, there are so many resources, sort of in the in the broader, I'm going to call it, uh, deconstructed, progressive, Christian, post-Christian, post-evangelical, whatever whatever space we collectively occupy, that are doing good work on this. Um, just off the top of my head, like um, Roberto Shea Espinoza, Andre Henry, um, Melissa Flora Bixler. I mean, I mean, I'm an Enneagram Five, so if, like if you want books, I got books. Like I will, I will send you podcasts. Um, there's a few people in the room who, who, who they know who they are. They've reached out to me recently, like having just like really simple questions about the Enneagram, the Enneagram, because uh, they're doing it in like a small group of theirs, and I've given them like novellas in response. So you know, you get, you get, you, you, you get that if you want the resources. So I guess what I'm saying here is like, like, there are so many different ways that we can sort of like, to use a Matt O'Neillism, skin the cat. He says that because he's from Kentucky. Um, but, the, you know, so whether we say, you know, you don't have enemies, or you do, but you need to love them, you know, to some degree it's semantics. The big idea here is that defeating our opponent, eliminating our opponents, it, it won't play out the way that we fantasize that it will. And so the passage that I did end up going with is in Ephesians. You have definitely heard it before, but probably not in the way that I'm going to talk about it this morning. Uh, and it's in Ephesians 6, um, and it says this, for our struggle... Is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, again, I'm just guessing here. Um, the way that this was probably, if you did hear this preached upon, or talked about, or taught on growing up, it was probably in relation to like, like, like literal spiritual warfare. Um, in, in, in fact, if anything, this would have been one of the passages maybe where. It, like, like someone would have gone out of their way to say, no, we're not talking about like actual political, social human relations. We're talking about like angels and demons and stuff like that. This is in the context of putting on like the full armor of God, um, which as I say that I'm remembering a way that I used to teach this in a very different church context to, 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 to preteens and I'm feeling kind of guilty about that. Um, but neither here nor there, I'm sure they'll turn out fine. Um, <laughs> But no, like, like and, and here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to necessarily, I'm not even, call, I don't, I don't want to overcorrect here. I don't want the pendulum to swing all the way back and say that this has nothing to do um, with spiritual realities. I think um, cards on the table, like my personal position is, is, is probably that this isn't talking about like literal like angels and demons and stuff like that. But it's also saying something that's more than um, mere metaphor. More than, like when we talk about systems, of oppression, when we talk about uh, ideologies, uh, beliefs, things that people can become caught up in that lead them to do terrible, terrible things, to think terrible, terrible things, to practice terrible, terrible things, it's, there's something more going on there. I'm not sure I would, at this stage in my faith journey, um, imagine, you know, Frank Peretti style, if you know that reference, Um, you know, that there's like, someone know the reference, Uh, that there's like literal, almost like, I don't know, like a demon behind every bush, and yet I want to say that there is something more going on, more that we can get sucked into, than, than just words and ideas, mere metaphors. But the big idea here, um, I'm going to call this a, uh, I'm going to call this like a like a walk and chew gum at the same time idea. You guys, know, you guys get that metaphor? You know, talking about something that you know, kind of the both and, something that we can do simultaneously. Because here's the reality, um, in the context of like like what we're up against, if I can put it that way. Um, Oftentimes, oftentimes the idea that I'm talking about this morning, reminding you, I don't know, hoping that you can see and maybe agree that you don't have an enemy has also been used as a means of saying like, and therefore, like you're getting too worked up over the injustices that you're seeing. And I don't want to say that, okay? Like there are... Realities right now, disproportionately for some of you in the room, um, and you know we're on the precipice of Pride Month here. So I'm thinking particularly, but not only around uh, you know about our LGBTQIA siblings, um, but but there are many forces of exploitation and marginalization in this world right now. Um, so please don't hear what I'm not saying. The takeaway from this cannot be. It cannot be. Because our enemies are not each other, it, they're these systems, these powers, these principalities, therefore, passivity is the takeaway. No, no, no. It's, to, to draw from um, one of the authors I mentioned earlier, Melissa Flor Bixler, it's, it's how to have an enemy or how do I posture myself knowing that this person who is standing either against me or against people who I know and love, or against people who are vulnerable and marginalized? How do I posture myself towards them in a way that does not reduce them to an enemy, but still valorizes and prioritizes the safety of the marginalized person in my midst? Or maybe you are that person. How do you prioritize your own safety? How do you you advocate for your humanity um, in the face of hate? And I'm not necessarily going to definitively answer that question today, in part because it's a really um, complex, nuanced question, and sometimes case by case, and in part because the whole point of this entire series is to explore that together over the next six weeks. Um, But what I do want to say, I guess what I do want to warn against is what I'm going to call kind of the, uh, the scapegoating fantasy. And I think... Not to oversimplify, but I think I would suggest that, like all of our—it's more complex than this—but, but, but any, almost any instance of marginalization, of of of, of hatred, of you know, racism, sexism, um, heteronormativity, ableism—all um, of it is often based on this really, really basic formula. There is something that we feel as if we're lacking, something that we imagine. Is going to make us whole, make us fulfilled, and we don't have that thing, and we need an explanation as to why we don't have that thing, and so we have to invent, posit, identify, imagine an enemy, an obstacle, someone, something, some group. If we can just overcome this fill in the blank, um, then we'll have the thing. Now, the, the the terrifying thing is, oftentimes we see that play out, and then it's not enough, and so we end up with these cycles of, of ever deepening violence, ever deepening exploitation. Um, that's bad enough, but then sometimes, and this is what many, you know, you know the, the, the Gundam franchise that I mentioned earlier, this is literally sort of like the premise of what it's all about. Um, even more destructive is not when it's one-sided, but when there's actually a, an exchange going on, when one side overcomes the other side, and then and then one ups them, uh, you know, around the degree of 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 destruction and exploitation, and it kind of just goes back and forth, and it just escalates, escalates until it's mutually assured destruction. Um, so, what then does it look like? What then does it look like to resist, to oppose, to defend, to to fight, but without sort of maintaining this belief that on the other side of defeating, destroying, killing, eliminating those standing in our way, will be this sort of like utopian heavenly completion that you know the, the, you know that we 're imagining, and again, you know in many ways i 'm talking to the people who are not in the room, you know to some degree, what i 'm inviting us into is. Um <laughs> how do we convince those who, you know we perhaps feel are threatening us or those we love of what I'm talking about this morning? How can their eyes be opened up to um, how can their eyes be opened up to the reality that they don't have an enemy, and that the people who they've identified as those who stand in the way of whatever fantasized, imaginary nostalgic, fill-in-the-blank notion of, 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 of goodness or completion. Um, how can we get them to disavow that? And in the process, in our process of getting them to disavow that, how can we not fall into the same trap? How can we not stumble into sort of the same destructive way of thinking? Um, and for all the ways that I've deconstructed my faith over the years, I, I, I really do think the authors of Scripture, Jesus, uh, Paul, um, yes, even Paul, um, have things to say about this. You know, you know, we see, of course, you know, I already mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. We see the ways that, you know, Jesus talking about, you know, loving your enemy, turning their cheek, you know, you know, um, an eye for an eye, for example, just to give you some historical context, w- w- was a revolutionary, actually, um, revolutionary idea in its time because it, 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 it existed precisely to um, eliminate sort of like the one-upsmanship, you know, you know, it's like, oh, you, you know, you killed my, my cow, you know, so now I'm going to kill your uh, servant or your slave because they had those. Um, oh, you killed my servant. Now I'm going to kill your son. Oh, you killed my son. Now I'm going to kill your wife. And, you know, it was just kind of like, one of, you know, until they eventually killed each other. It was absurd. So when Jesus is coming in and saying like, no, like, so the idea of eye for an eye was like, no, no, like, like, like equal measure, equal measure. Like, what does that look like? You know, if you kill his cow, you get to kill his cow. You know, something like that. Um, and, and Jesus is trying to take us through and beyond that to something, um, something more. And so, again, this is just the intro week. But the thing that I think I want to I wanna leave you with, and I'm going to tell a story in just a moment. band's going to come back up. It'll be great. Um, but, um, but, but, but to set that up, um, the way I think I want to frame it is this. is I think oftentimes the reason we find the enemy thing so easy is because, well, one, like I already said, it, 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 it feels good. But also, we have this limited purview. We can't imagine that things could be otherwise. The, uh, the reduction of our experiences of others to this sort of friend-enemy distinction, and I'm using that language specifically, it's the language of Carl Schmitt, uh, who was kind of the, the, the academic sort of like brainchild behind the Nazi regime. Um, this friend-enemy distinction, it feels inevitable. And I think there's a sense in which we need to fight against the inevitable because if we don't fight against the inevitable, then we'll never actually know if it really was inevitable. Another way of saying that might be, um, there are things that we think are impossible that we need to realize are merely unprecedented. And they remain impossible insofar as we buy into the impossibility of them. But if there's a, you know, call it miraculous, call it supernatural, call it practical, I would. If there's a takeaway, you know, from the pages of Scripture around this, it's it's often that leaning into the impossible will then reveal it as merely unprecedented, and new horizons, new possibilities of what could be, what should be, what might be, begin to emerge, and in many ways, this was the story of the early church. This is the story of the New Testament. And so, um, And so, kind of in closing... I just wanna give you some, some, some practical examples that I've become aware of recently. Um, the first, actually some of the people in this room uh, joined me at, so um, believe it or not, and I've mentioned this a few times from stage now, I'm just gonna keep mentioning it because I, really I really want us to be involved with this. Uh, believe it or not, in Union County of all places, in the city of Monroe, there is a robust pride movement. Um, and just a, just a really incredible drag scene. And just a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of some friends of mine going to a drag show down there. And if you want to see modeled what I'm talking about, you got to go to a drag show. Like really probably any of them, this would be true, but, but if you want to join me all the way down in Monroe, um, well, you have to tell me well in advance because the tickets sell out really quickly, but, um, which is a good thing. But in this space, like contradictory things are sort of held true in intention. It is simultaneously a space where the lived realities of LGBTQIA persons are named. I mean, there are literal protesters standing outside, and and they talk about the laws and the legislation that many of the people in this room right now are up against in our country right now, and talk about the need to show up in solidarity, to vote, to organize, to, to, to do all these things, and, in the midst of that, the drag queens themselves—the people who are, you know, you know, amongst the most right now in our society being ostracized and demonized and slandered—are the people who are still, nevertheless, sort of standing by, preaching. I would call it that. They're preaching a uh, a posture, a doctrine of love and inclusion. Of of of, even though these people are saying these things about us. They don't know, they don't understand. So how can we, how can we come together safely in solidarity with one another? But how can, we, how can we open their eyes to the fact that we are not, I'm speaking with and for them, uh, that we are not their enemies, that we are not here to destroy them so they don't need to destroy us. So if you're looking for like a practical takeaway, uh, the first thing I would say is like, go to a drag show. Bring your kids. They'll tell you if it's not appropriate for kids. They're good about that. They usually are. Um, And if you are part of the, uh, hint, hint, if you are part of the Southeast region, Matthews, Mint Hill, Stallings, Indian Trail, come to this one. Like, 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 let's continue to get involved with this group and the rest of you regions are gonna have other opportunities. Um, If you don't know what those opportunities are, um, before you come to me, I'm gonna tell you you can come to me in a second, before you come to me, go to each other. You all probably know about things, whether it's LGBTQI liberation related or not, there are so many things going on, needs happening here in the city that, 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 that many of you all are aware of. And Matt talked about it a few minutes ago, we have numbers. That's huge. Um, but then beyond that, I mean, Matt already named some of these things, but like, join us on the 8th for this Parkview screening. It is going to be heavy, but it's an opportunity to hear not just what's happening, but, you know, uh, Ray McKinnon's gonna be here, Bishop Tanya Rawls is gonna be here. These are these are leaders within our city who have been standing in solidarity, um, doing this work for 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 years and years, and they're gonna be able to, we're gonna be able to dialogue with them about ways that we can show up collectively, practical solutions. Join us for that. Join us two nights later when Trey Pearson is here. Trey's story is beautiful, it's incredible, and he he provides a, a, a model of hope and celebration amidst. These realities, he is a success story of someone who's doing the hard both and work of standing up for the dignity of his humanity while at the same time resisting the urge to make an enemy of those who have called him. We'll show you. There we go. Yeah. All right, I acknowledged you. (laughs) Stupid demons. Um, Join us. Join us for Parkview. Um, be allies, be in solidarity, be co-conspirators around, you know, this this difficult tension of resistance and love. Because um, here's the thing, here's the thing, uh, especially for those of you who are probably feeling it most, for those of you who are feeling it most, um, you can't help but feel like this is a fight, like a war. Um, and so I guess... You know, if I'm going to leave you with anything, it it, it would be, even in fights, even in war, like, you don't shoot the hostages. Like, the people who we might feel up against, they're not enemies, they're hostages. They're hostages to ideas that, that feel good because they feel safe. They feel good because they feel certain. They feel good because they feel like they might give them something that they're lacking. And the reality is that they won't. There, will, there could be nothing more disappointing to the people we might imagine to be our enemies than uh, for them, nothing more disappointing for them than for them to win and discover that defeating us or defeating y'all or defeating the people who they've imagined need to be defeated doesn't fulfill them. So the most loving thing that we can do is to not let them win, to not give them the dissatisfaction, the melancholy of destroying the most marginalized among us. So that's half our challenge and then the other half is to not do the same thing to them, to not reduce them to what they are tempted to reduce many of us, many of you to, holding that tension, resistance and love, breaking the binary, so to speak. That's what this series is about. I hope we'll see you throughout the series. I hope we'll see you at some of these events we have coming up. Um, awesome opportunities to just show solidarity with the vulnerable among us. Thank you for being here this morning. Grace and peace.